RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Priority One is brought to you by our Patreon supporter, Jim DeVico. We thank him and all our other patrons for their monthly support. Command codes verified. Priority One message from Starfleet coming in on secure channel. Hello, Captains. You're listening to episode 391 of Priority One, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, and your weekly report from the Star Trek multiverse. Recorded live on Tuesday, November 27th, 2018, and available for download or streaming on Friday, November 30th at PriorityOnePodcast.com. I'm Elijah. I'm Kenna. And I'm Anthony. Well, I hope you guys had a wonderful Thanksgiving break. Uh, I missed you all these last two weeks, and I'm glad to be back in the chair. And I've missed you all. I really have. We definitely have definitely family. not not missed you too. Not not missed <laughs> you. Yeah, yeah. Well, Kenna, why don't you tell us what we've got coming <laughs> up this week? Well, this week we're trekking out new trailers for both the upcoming short trek The Brightest Star and Star Trek Discovery Season 2. And Nicholas Meyer discusses why he was not involved with Disco Season 2 and why he's not done with Trek just yet. In Star Trek Online and gaming news, we now know when Q's Winter Wonderland event starts and we finally get a good look at this year's free ship. Later, our science advisor, Dr. Robert Hurt, is here with another report from the Astrometrics Lab, live. And as always, before we wrap up the show, we'll open hailing frequencies for your incoming messages. Captains, remember that those hailing frequencies are always open, and we love to hear from you between episodes. So please reach out to us. We're on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Priority One Podcast. We're on Twitter at Priority One Pod. You can even send us an email via incoming at PriorityOnePodcast.com. And we're on Instagram. Follow us at PriorityOnePod. I've been gone for two weeks, but that doesn't mean I am any less grateful for the patronage that so many of you participate in in supporting Priority One Podcast. Without your monthly contributions, Priority One would not be able to continue to produce the content you've come to expect from week to week. Without our patrons, we just simply wouldn't be able to podcast. So we're so very grateful that you believe in Priority One and offer a financial contribution each and every month. Now, we understand, of course, that a financial contribution may not be in the cards, and we know that this is the holiday season and things get tight. But don't forget that there are other ways that you can help contribute to Priority One Podcast. For instance, when you see us post something on social media platforms like Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, be sure to retweet share and tell your friends that they can get their weekly dose of Star Trek news right here on Priority One. As always, Captains, it's your support that keeps us going. 
And another way that you can help us out here at Priority One is to join our team. We are always looking for volunteer audio editors to help us with the show each week. Whether you have years of experience or if you just want to learn a new skill, drop us a line. Incoming at PriorityOnePodcast.com is the address. We'll train you and give you the software you need. So if you'd like to become part of the Priority One family, just send us an email to incoming at PriorityOnePodcast.com or check out our website. Now, let's check out all the latest news from the Star Trek multiverse. I don't know. Then let's check it out. On Tuesday, the third short trek, The Brightest Star, received its 30-second trailer treatment in advance of its December 6th release. In the ad, we see the Kelpian homeworld, Kaminar. Saru explains via narrative overlay that... When my people look up at the stars, they see only death. Then thunder, and Saru looks skyward. Quick clips show us Saru, hidden, as he watches a group gather. Paper and a mysterious glowing device pulled from a hidden bundle. Kelpians gather in what looks to be a place of importance. Bright lights. Kelpians again looking towards the stars. Saru asks, What is out there? beyond the skies it's so cool so cool and i love the visual design like the watching it's it's a 30 second teaser which is almost as long as the short trek will be itself um but it's it's so rich and inviting i am really looking forward to it and it looks like we're gonna finally learn the story of how the heck did this guy end up in starfleet yeah i think this is really cool um I really enjoyed the trailer. I just want it already. Like, I just want these tracks now. Just give it to me. I, I'm like, I'm, I've, I've gotten to the point now where it's like, okay, cool. Another trailer. When do I get to watch it? Yeah, shortly after your CBS okay. All Access subscription renews Renews. for another month. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> thank you. But that is true. They that is did accurate. offer a, first of all, what a, what a <clears throat> joke of a, Black Friday, Cyber Monday sale. They had, all, they were like, get a month free when you subscribe to CBS All Access. That's not, that's not a Black Friday deal. That's not a Black Friday sale. You know what a Black Friday sale is for a subscription service like CBS All Access? Hulu. What Hulu did. Yeah. Ninety nine cents a month with the limited commercials, albeit, but ninety nine cents a month for one year. That's twelve dollars for the entire year. Or yep. Whatever, thirteen after taxes. That that is a Black Friday sale for a streaming service. Wowza. Yeah. Wowza. They're going to reap the rewards from that because they, I, by the time you've had a service like that for 12 months, either you've forgotten about it and probably forgotten about your subscription or you're watching it and then you're not right. going to get rid of your subscription. They're going to they're going to do so well off the back of that. Um, and I yep. bet um, whoever replaced Les Moonves is kicking themselves. <laughs> Because I would have done it. I would have. I would have subscribed for a whole year had they done a serious Cyber Monday or Black Friday sale like that. I would have. I would have just said, "Here, take my money. I want to watch Star Trek. I'll pay. I'll play. I'll pay for a sale like that." But they're not. So I'm gonna wait. I'm gonna wait till January when I have to actually pay to watch the uh, Star Trek Discovery. To be fair, they also know that you're gonna pay come January and they know that you're gonna pay full price for a year because if you wanna get the last short Trek and all of Discovery and the Picard series and whatever Nick Myers got up his sleeve and the animated whatever. series, you're whatever. gonna keep on paying and you're gonna pay full price. Whatever, whatever. So. I cannot, mm. whatever. I'm not wrong. <laughs> 
but as far as this short trek goes, uh, I, I I enjoyed it. I thought you know it looks like an interesting take in terms of timeline. Like, were they pre-warp and then suddenly this happens and it explains how he's in Starfleet now? Because my understanding was it takes a while for a civilization who just got warp capability to be included in the Federation. It's possible that he ended up not on his planet by accident or in some uh. something else like he was taken or ended up somewhere else and that's how he got integrated uh, because i agree oh, right, with you on that because it takes a while for a pre-warp civilization to kind of get added in and then they kind of train him up and then it's not like he was the first candidate from kaminar to go to whatever they just say he's the first in starfleet but you don't have to be a member of the federation to join Are starfleet Rolaren was a Bajoran in Starfleet. Well, and Bajor was never in the Federation in in a live action series that we saw. But but the but like, the Bajorans not, like being in the, the Federation were, does were not warp capable civilization already. That's what I'm saying. This trailer makes it seem as though right. the Kelpians were not a warp developed civilization. Right, but like you could basically have first contact, and then you could have Saru say, "I want to join you guys." And then he applies. I tell you what, you guys. And whatever. But Let's reconvene next week. Yeah, <laughs> and we can discuss it for realsies instead of uh, blind two. conjecture. Keep in mind, it's only Fair a 15 enough. minute Fair episodes. In so, two weeks. Um, two weeks. It, it, they're going to be limited as to how much they can tell you about how that works. But um, we'll know soon enough. We love commercials. Well, not all commercials, but certainly those that promote Star Trek. And most certainly, those that give us a never-before-seen glimpse at upcoming Star Trek content. There is a new Star Trek Discovery Season 2 TV spot floating around the internet, and the spot, which is available on iSpot.tv, features a fair amount of footage used in the Season 2 trailer that dropped at New York Comic Con, including the Discovery getting pelted with asteroids, the interior of the USS Hiawatha falling to pieces, and lots of running. So much running. But it also features some new-to-us footage, including a couple of shots of Mr. Spock. In one of the aforementioned scenes, Spock appears to be neck-pinching a disco dock in front of a pair of armed security guards. In the other, Spock is in conversation with Captain Christopher Pike. The grinning, bearded Vulcan is asked by Pike, quote, Spock, is that a smile I see on your face? End quote. To which Spock simply replies, quote, yes. End quote. Follow the link in the show notes to check out the video for yourself. What's going on with now ships always having to be just scraped off the hole by a sharp-edged de- piece of debris in space? Makes it that, feel that more in... visceral. You know, oh, okay. gone are the days of the pristine Hilton in space. We are in the era of, <laughs> like... Of you're banging up your new Lamborghini on a bollard in a parking lot. This is that that kind of visceral horror, you know. Because this, the, we all know the starship is a character, so watching that get damaged is God. Do you remember? Do you remember in Beyond when the when they're like slit her throat and then the 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 swarm thing went straight through the neck of of the Enterprise and it was just like uh, like yep. it's that they're they quite rightly are using that as a piece of drama now. So that's that's where we are. That's where we are. I'm cool with them. I'm all right. I'm all right. It's clever. Like it's really yeah. clever as, you know, finally acknowledging that the starship is a uh, contributing member of the cast. If somebody gives one paint job joke, I'm prepare to be mad. mad it's coming. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, it's coming. It's There's no <laughs> doubt about it. I mean, there's a paint job joke in every Star Trek iteration, except maybe TNG. Uh, as for this, I actually kind of like the fact that Spock is smiling because it almost helps bridge whatever's happening in the first few episodes of TOS where he's a little bit more mm-hmm. emotional. Um, so I, I'm kind of excited about that. And maybe this is something, um, maybe this is a, a bit of what they're saying is how this show will fit into canon. Maybe explaining a little bit of that, which I think is kind of cool. I will say this, and I am feel like I'm the optimist mm-hmm. of this show. Uh, I'm not impressed with the two seconds of Spock I saw. Oh, it- Right, I'm going to be super dismissive right now. Just ignore everything you see in the trailer because trailers are so, so, so misleading. They're out of context. I remember the first disco trailers that we saw with um, Giorgio and Burnham walking around in the desert planet and it was all like the audio was pieced together from different conversation. It was completely misleading. A trailer means nothing. But what you do get is you get a look at people actually talking you get a look at some of the visual things that are going to happen. You get an idea of what we can expect the drama to be. And that's about all you can take away from that. Did it make you excited? Yes or no? That's that's what they're trying. The trailer is to get you to go, I want to watch that. So it's literally just designed to, to make it look exciting and then move on. To that, yes, to your point, Kenna, I, this got me excited. I thoroughly got excited for season two. Uh, and I'm looking forward to what they're going to do. And I hope that they do explain Spock's more emotional portrayal from the cage. I'm sorry, the menagerie by tying it in somehow, right? If this whole leading up to season two, they've been talking about how they're going to tie it in, tie it in, tie it in and answer canonical questions, et cetera, et cetera. So hopefully we'll get these nuanced things. Time after time, author, screenwriter and director Nicholas Meyer has the solution for what ails Star Trek. And the day after the announcement of his involvement in Star Trek Discovery, we at Priority One celebrated. But questions soon arose about what Meyer was in fact contributing and if said contributions were continuing. The 72-year-old Hollywood veteran sat down with YouTuber Midnight's Edge and gave a bit of insight. Meyer couldn't pinpoint exactly what his contributions to Star Trek Discovery were due to the nature of television writing rooms, but he did say, quote, I was involved in it for the first year, and I worked on it, and I wrote things on it and then I was not invited for the second year. I don't know why, end quote. He continued, quote, You know, once it went on the air, that was my involvement with it. More or less ended, end quote. But Meyer also indicated he may not be done with Trek. Expanding on comments he made to an audience in California in May, Meyer confirmed he has in fact written a con three-hour miniseries. Meyer told Midnight's Edge, quote, I was commissioned to write a three-hour or three-night event, and that's what I did. It's called SETI Alpha 5, and I don't know the current status, end quote. Meyer mentions some confusion due to big upheavals at CBS and says he, quote, hasn't heard from them in some time, end quote. So this explains why they copyrighted SETI Alpha 5 because that was one of the copyrights that they applied for. Also, Star Trek Reliant. So it's quite possible that maybe this is this three-night, three-hour miniseries is something on the back burner, and they're possibly either doing rewrites on it, or it's it's a project that they might revisit after they get some of these other projects Mm -hmm. up and running. So I don't think that this is completely 
out of the realm of possibility of us seeing this at some point, but I don't think we're going to see it anytime soon. And as he points out the timeline of this, it sounds like that uh, piece of writing was done before the major writing changes and also um, some of the leadership changes at CBS. Probably before Brian Fuller left. Yeah, and and also probably well before the Kurtzman deal ever happened. So um, right, right. it's debatable. However, as you point out, Anthony, SETI Alpha 5 was still in that group of things that got um, trademarked. So maybe it's just uh, biding some time while they figure some things out. We can hope because I, I have a lot I have a lot of faith in Nicholas Meyer and and even though I have doubts about retreading the con story again, um, I, I think it could be potentially good um, under his pen. I mean, there's no doubt that Nicholas Meyer saved Star Trek in in Wrath of Khan, um, and then later again in Undiscovered Country, um, but specifically Wrath of Khan. And he knows Trek in a way that uh, some, most people don't, you know, um, and wrote in in ways that most people don't. I think that not using him is a, a grave mistake in some way, shape, or form, and not involving him in, in Trek projects. Hopefully, it's not an ego thing because I don't know. Just based on the way Kurtzman carries himself, and also and Nicholas Meyer for sure. You know, maybe, maybe you know, you never know. Maybe they just weren't there. There was there were creative differences. Uh, I hope that he will find a place in the forward development of Star Trek writing. Speaking of retreading, Meyer didn't stop with Star Trek Discovery or SETI Alpha 5 talk. In addition to his other films, scripts, and books, Meyer gabbed about his past with Star Trek. The most headline-worthy of his thoughts regarded the often maligned Star Trek Into Darkness. When asked how he felt about the reuse of story elements, Meyer responded, quote, well, it is on one hand nice to be so successful, or beloved, or however you want to describe it, that somebody wants to do an homage to what you did. And I was flattered and touched, but in my sort of artistic worldview, if you're going to do an homage, you have to add something. You have to put another layer on it, and they didn't, end quote. He went on to describe the film as gimmicky and said he found it, quote, more clever than satisfying, end quote. For Into Darkness fans, there is a silver lining. He didn't hate it as much as the recent television reboot of Time After Time. Of that project, he told the interviewer, quote, I had no involvement with it, and it was terrible, end quote. For more great tidbits from the mind of the great Nicholas Meyer, check out the interview link in our show notes. Dude, I am I have so much respect for him after that because that is some top-level shade. That is straight-up <laughs> that he just didn't mince words. Did it's wonderful. It's refreshing to to have it be you know not trying to trying to be kind about it. It was wonderful. Maybe it's you know he's seventy two years old. Maybe he's just like you know what. I'm not going to mince words here. It really was. It really <laughs> was wonderful. nice to hear. More clever than satisfying is a is a tremendous insult. It's wonderful. It's interesting to worth noting too that Alex Kurtzman was a co-writer on Star Trek Into Darkness. And it's possible that, you know, having that SETI Alpha 5 con story is just a little too soon for him to take Ooh, on. Careful, Tony. You're going to like you're going to you're going to start rumors here. You're going to start rumors of, you know, um, like little infighting between uh, between the, the, the writing staff. No, I meant more like Alex Kurtzman just doesn't want to do another con story right now. 
Well, that wraps it up for this week in Star Trek news from the multiverse. Let's find out what happened this week in Star Trek gaming. Computer status report. Status. Incoming message. I'm only in the mood for good news today. It's once again that time of year. Q will be returning to share his winter wonderland soon, and we've got all the joyous goodies he'll be offering. To start, you can update your captain's holiday fashion with a new Enviro jacket. These sleek and long outerwear items can be worn by any gender or species. If you're feeling the chill of winter, get yourself into a new holiday sweater with one of three brand new designs. A tardigrade wearing a Christmas hat, antlers coming out of a Borg cube, and a disco sweater complete with D-I-S-C-O and the USS Discovery herself. If you're looking for something with more of an edge, then we suggest one of the new equipment options. You can slice and dice those fruitcakes this holiday season with a green nanopulse Discovery Era Batleth. This weapon deals plasma damage instead of physical damage. And if kits are more your style, take advantage of three new kit modules based on the psionic abilities of the Fakiri. Torment of the Underworld, Collective Nightmares, and Ravaging Barrage won't put visions of sugar plums dancing in anyone's head, but it sure will do some damage to those on your naughty list. And finally, you can acquire a new vanity pet this season, the Tortured Elf, a Crampiri minion who will follow you around the galaxy, but only while the winter event is live. You too can jump into this season's festivities December 4th on all three platforms. After a ton of speculation and a lot of teasing from Cryptic, we finally get a look at the Winter Wonderland event ship, the Fakiri Store Warship. And boy oh boy, is it something. The Space Roadster, as I like to call it, comes with a Lieutenant Commander Universal Pilot Specialization Seat and a Universal Console Chains of Fire. When this console is activated, your ship will tether itself to nearby ships and discharge fire damage to them. Now, this console may be equipped to any ship, but is limited to only one. Once you've reached Starship Mastery Level 5, the Starship trait, the Maw of Greythor, will be unlocked. This trait, while active, will periodically deal fire damage to ships behind you when at full throttle. For a full list of ship stats, check out the show notes. Captains on PlayStation Plus can unwrap a gift from the PlayStation Store. From now until January, captains can claim the Cobalt Cadet Pack for free. This pack includes one very rare Discovery Phaser Stun Pistol, one very rare Discovery Phaser Sniper Rifle, 12 bank slots, and one large XP boost. And captains on both PlayStation and Xbox can participate in another Tholian Red Alert this weekend. From now until Monday, December 3rd, get in and defend the Azure Nebula for enhanced rewards. And finally this week, the Star Trek Fleet Command mobile game has launched in the Apple App Store and Google Play Store. So next week, we'll give you our review. Well, that's it for this week's gaming news. Now let's welcome Dr. Robert Hurt for a special edition of Astrometrics. I'm sure there is an answer. Well, better get some facts. So it's actually really great to be here live with you guys for an Astrometrics report for a change. It's much more fun, I think, doing it with you guys on Google Hangouts than just going all by myself in my closet and recording it quietly into my iPad. It sounds so sad that way. <laughs> well, we're glad to have you this week. 
But actually, one thing I wanted to lead with with Astrometrics today is actually to just sort of talk a little bit about a really cool project that we have gotten to do at work as part of participation in NASA's Universe of Learning program. We have NASA's basically great observatories like Hubble and Spitzer and Chandra, along with JPL and Sonoma State, have actually been granted a, an outreach grant from NASA to do astrophysics outreach, sort, sort of the same kind of mission-based outreach that NASA had always been doing for many years, but they've recently restructured how education works. And so now we're doing much more kind of coordinated outreach on a lot of different fronts. But one of the things that our group at Caltech is responsible for is trying to produce educational videos leveraging Hollywood, since, you know, we are Hollywood adjacent. And just uh, in the last couple of weeks, we got a chance finally to release a video that we'd been working on for several months, where uh, we had a really wonderful opportunity to work with some cast members from one of the other shows, uh, Cass Anvar and Carrie Gee from The Expanse, who, who I think are both just phenomenal actors, along with uh, Perry Shen from General Hospital. And we uh, we produced a show called The Habitable Zone, with a, with a nod to The Twilight Zone. And... Um, we're basically going to do at least up front uh, two different episodes of this, very short, you know, five, five-ish minute long stories. But we're basically trying to teach a little exoplanet science through the context of a fun little sci-fi story. And so the first episode, uh, which is called The Goldilocks Paradox, is actually out now. It's on uh, YouTube. Uh, you can find it at our website at universeunplugged.org. And uh, in addition to just having a little sci-fi short that we've really tried to fold in a lot of uh, you know, real science about exoplanets and, and, and the idea that as you know, if anyone has listened to astrometrics reports for a while know that uh, a recurring theme is that habitability is much more complicated than just where a planet happens to fall relative to its star. And so we're trying to, each episode we want to dig into like a different aspect of things that can affect whether a world could be livable or not, you know, at least by humans. But we, we had such a great time shooting this thing. We um, we actually were able to shoot on a standing Starship set that is literally halfway between where I live and where I work <laughs> on the way to Pasadena <laughs> from West L.A. A fantastic place full, filled with all sorts of awesome memorabilia from movies like Galaxy Quest. But they actually had a standing set for a spaceship. And so uh, Cass and Kara came out and spent a day with us and, you know, sort of did a little twist on their roles from the experience and gave us a chance to take some science-inspired technobabble and turn it into a real story. That's really awesome. I don't know if I missed this, but tell me about your involvement in the project. Were you there on set for the filming? How involved were you for all of this? <laughs> Very. <laughs> uh, this all actually came about because uh, about a year and a half ago, Caltech actually hosted an event uh, on campus called The Science of the Expanse. And I have to say, it's a show I really have loved personally, just because uh, it's you know it's based on a well-loved series of novels. But the fact that they've worked really hard to show a realistic colonization of the solar system, you know, a few hundred years hence, was just phenomenal. And that the um, the visual effects in it, they they actually you know you don't have gravity unless the ship is accelerating, and when you stop accelerating, then you're weightless. You know, they've done all the physics really, really well in the show, and uh, so I had a chance to meet some of the cast members because I got to moderate that panel. And since then, they'd actually uh, put me and Patrice on the, the guest list. So we, we keep getting invited to like their season finale cast and crew parties and their season premiere parties. <laughs> and so after a chance of kind of meeting the cast over, over the last year, you know, it, it's actually so much easier to get someone engaged in a project if you know them. <laughs> right. And you can say, hey, would you like to do this thing for NASA? It's much faster than trying to go you know, the, through the agent and hope that someday the, you know, the, the performer may, may actually see it. And so... Um, so it really spooled up from their interest, and then so I'm the I was basically the writer director, 
and a visual effects artist for it. So wow. uh, it's, it, we had, um, uh, you know, everyone at work, had a, f- a few other people from work helped with the uh, production and the shoot. And my, my colleague Tim Pyle helped with a lot of the uh, the pre-production design and, and sort of assistant director on set. Uh, my other colleague, Keith Miller, uh, who's actually the newest member of our group for the last year, was um, really my right-hand man. He was the editor and sound design guy and uh, director of photography on set. And so, uh, you know, it's really kind of two of us put like 90% of what you see on screen together. And then wow. the, the rest of the, the team really helped out with all the logistics and the planning and the, the booking the agents and, and, you know, all of that. So it, it was really incredible. It's my little slice of being a, a Hollywood producer. I was going to say you've got all Hollywood on us. I, I know, like totally. And, and uh, the only weird thing is because we're doing this for NASA and we just want eyeballs on it. Uh, you know, it's free. <laughs> you don't have to subscribe to a, to a new website and you, you, you don't have to buy the Blu-ray. Just, just go watch it. You know, I think that it's really important that science is made accessible and in a way that also ties entertainment back to real science because it gets people engaged in that conversation. We are slightly having an issue with people maybe not believing science, which is ridiculous. And um, so it's really good that you're able to do things like this that pull things from popular culture and into a into like a science context that people can understand easily. That is absolutely the goal and and frankly, there's the argument that, oh, people zone out if, if you put exposition in a show or, you know, it, you, there's this argument that, oh, we don't put science in because we don't want to alienate audiences. And yet you watch a show like Star Trek and, you know, many minutes are spent with people spouting technobabble in, in dramatic scenes. And it's like, like Star Trek has had a long history of like inspiring a lot of good science by doing basically really bad science that that's actually on the screen. Even Discovery has made some like incredibly fundamental just gaffes, you know, like like making a reference to the fact that um, Starbase One is 100 AU away from Earth, and if it's 100 AU away from Earth, it means it's actually in the outer solar system. It's part of our solar system. It's like, but yet there's a star there, and it's like, it's it's you know over t- about twice as far away as Pluto, right? That's not another star system, but like really, it just it would have just taken like a minute for someone to say, oh, you know, you maybe should say like a dozen light years instead of 100 AU. It would have sounded fine, but it, it would have been technically correct. So the goal here was really let's do something that's a little fun sci-fi short, but let's just make all the things they're saying actually motivated by the science. And I'm hoping if it's fun enough and you know people really kind of get into that, and it will be hopefully the sort of things that uh, people would like to like uh, watch and, and share with their friends. Well, we're going to definitely have links in our show notes, but remind everyone again what's the easiest way to find the video? Yeah, you can either go to uh, YouTube and just search for The Habitable Zone and look for the episode... Uh, the, uh, the Goldilocks Paradox, or you can go to our website, which is universeunplugged.org, uh, just one word, and it's uh, where we have both the Habitable Zone series and uh, a couple of other series that we've done before with uh, other celebrities like Will Wheaton. It was, uh, was in a series we did last year called uh, Think Tank. And um, uh, yeah, and you can go there. And, and the videos, if you go to our website, we also have some uh, additional materials like links to related topics if you want to dig in a little deeper. I've got a couple of desktops you can download for the Habitable Zone, um, including my, my uh, yeah, I think I was showing off my, uh, my 3D printed ship.
ship of the Arcadia, which is an Odyssey class from uh, Star Trek Online. Well, uh, it turns out that the, the ship that Cass and Kara are in in Havel Zone is also uh, coincidentally known as the Arcadia. Oh, coincidentally. So. <laughs> oh. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it was also fun to get a chance to, you know, I do a lot of science visualization for work, but then to really get in and get to do a little sci-fi visualization and, yeah. you know, build a ship from the ground up and have my spin at being a Thomas Maroney, at making a ship that, that maybe looks pretty cool, but also has you know, a little bit of grounding in, 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 in physics, you know. I, I very much insisted the ship had to like keep flipping around and decelerating when it gets to places because you know they they always do that in the expanse and I was insisting that we can't do anything stupider in our video than is done in the expanse <laughs> because that would just be plain embarrassing. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. And now, so you are hoping and planning to do more of these series? Yes, there will be. Uh, we actually shot two scripts when we uh, uh, shot back in, uh, I guess, the end of August. And so there'll be a second one coming out early 2019, um, uh, which will be called The Scorched Earth Enigma Mystery. What's, what's what's wrong with that planet? <laughs> and uh, yeah, that one will hit uh, like a different topic, a different kind of uh, uh, consideration we have for what what might make a planet habitable or not habitable. Congratulations. That's amazing how much work you've put into this. It's it's also why I missed doing the uh, astrometrics report last month right. because I was pulling really, really long hours trying oh. to get that ship built and, and looking decent. So <laughs> yeah, when it's when you know when you're working with with a small team, you know the, the dedication is always there, of course, but it takes a toll and it takes up hours. So congratulations, and we're looking forward to the next video. Thank you, thank you. It's it's fun being a sci-fi science filmmaker for a change. So. <laughs> But that said, I can still hit a little bit of official astrometrics report on the science side of things, too. There's been a, a lot of fun stuff going on the last few weeks. And I guess uh, I guess forefront in everyone's mind is uh, this week we, for the eighth time in human history, have successfully landed a, uh, a mission on the surface of Mars, InSight Probe, that, again, is... a uh, the mission was based in uh, uh, just down the street from me at JPL in, in uh, lovely Pasadena, California. And uh, Insight, I, I have to admit, I am not as big of an Insight geek as I should be. I was actually in the middle of a meeting when Insight landed, oh, and we kept no. saying that we were going to, like, we needed to cut out and run upstairs and watch the landing. And by the time we finished talking about protostellar disks, it was like, oh, and people were walking down the hall and it landed, it's all cool. <laughs> so I, I missed the, uh, the emotional excitement of it, but... <laughs> uh, the thing that sets Insight apart from what we've done before is that this actually lands a seismometer on Mars. And so it's going to be our first uh, earthquake station on the Red Planet. And what is really phenomenal, and there are, there are some, actually some really good podcasts out there that really dig into the science of, uh, uh, of Insight. And I, I, I actually, I might even um, dig up a link for a, a colleague of mine who has a, a really good podcast. And she's had a couple of people on really discussing in great detail what you can achieve with uh, uh, seismometers on, on a planet. And just even, even with one seismometer, there's just an incredible wealth of information you get from you know, shifts in the crust, or if a meteor impact occurs, just listening to how the vibrations resonate through the planet will give us an incredible amount of information that um, we don't currently have on what the inside of Mars is like, not just the outside. Were you guys, any of you following the, uh, the inside landing this week? Yeah, I watched it. I was in, it was sort of over my lunch hour and it, it landed like minutes before I had to go into another meeting. And it was so amazing. I mean, the whole thing from the start of the, of the entry uh, to it landing, 
felt instantaneous. Uh, they did a really great job of announcing what was going on. They had a couple of announcers that were sort of explaining in real terms what was happening. Uh, and then there was another member of the actual, I, I guess, the landing team who was also describing what was happening in terms of the heat shield deploying and the parachute deploying and um, how far they were from the surface and kind of relaying you know, what they mean when they say that they have telemetry. You got to sort of pan over the people that were doing their day jobs, really. There was a really cute pair that everyone's talking about this like it was an older guy and a younger woman who were clearly working very closely together and they were just so animated and then when it landed they were up and they had this like enormously elaborate like secret handshake (laughs) it was wonderful to watch they were so excited and so into it and I highly recommend if you have the chance to you can go onto YouTube and watch uh, and watch it it doesn't take very long Um, and it's really really a yeah, cool, it's cool I thing to watch. Watched uh, when Curiosity landed in, in particular, and you know, I, I don't know about you, but I, I get like all emotional <laughs> watching these things because you know there's that energy of these people who've, who've devoted you know years or decades uh, in some cases of some missions of their life, you know, building this, and and uh, there is a, a really powerful emotional punch to it, all in the name of science. Of course. So, Doctor Hurt, speaking of landing on other planets, you know. I, I gotta ask, was our solar system probed? <laughs> Have we been probed, Doctor Hurt? Uh, a lot, it's a little personal. Like, surely Elijah? you know that that no solar system <laughs> should be probed without prior consent, right? Agreed. Agreed. I, I, <laughs> we we are in a new age of. of uh, Where's my towel? <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, surely you, you must be speaking of the uh, the recent uh, amazing uh, I, uh, discovery of an interstellar visitor to our solar system, uh, the uh, uh, asteroid known uh, dubbed uh, Oumuamua. Which, uh, yeah, in fact, I probably did a I, I did an astrometric support on that a while ago, when right after it was first discovered. Yeah, Oumuamua was an amazing uh, object, and it, it, just in that it was the first time that we had been able to catch. Uh, a, a transitory visitor through our system that originated from beyond the solar system, and um, you know, and, and originally it was was uh, you know you you figured this out by when you try to map out the orbit of the object and you realize that the trajectory it's on is in the the form of a hyperbola. Uh, it's a um, it's a it's an orbital shape of something that's sort of slinging around but will never ever return, and uh, it means it was just basically coming from outside the gravity well of the sun, pulled in, and it just had enough momentum to just keep it from stopping and flinging it out the other side. Now, what, of course, on later analysis got people so excited about Oumuamua is that when you plotted that course and followed it carefully, as, as you know, it once you know it was discovered as being you know interesting and there was a lot of attention on it, it did something actually really remarkable. It, it, it did a course change, effectively. It, it changed its velocity over time, not just purely ballistic. And this got people really, really excited. You, you combine it together with the weirdness that the thing had a very strange shape that uh, based on um, it's, it's changing, the changing amount of light from the object over time made it look like it's something like you know, you know, six to ten times as long as it is wide. So it's like, you know, like a pencil or something floating through the system. But Like in Star Trek IV, the big cylinder thing. Yeah, like a big <laughs> cylinder coming through the system. But... The really remarkable thing is that when its trajectory was followed very carefully, there it did something remarkable. It, it accelerated on the way out of the system. It, it, it sped up a little bit. And so this created a lot of speculation, including 
a uh, uh, you know a peer-reviewed journal article that came. Some of the co-authors were uh, from Princeton, looking at all the possible arguments of what it could or couldn't be. And the fact that one of those possible hypotheses of what it could be was that it could be an extraterrestrial light sail, a ship that you know somehow deployed a sail that would then then pick up the photons from the sun and be a, a mechanism by which an object would accelerate out of the sun. Of course, that's the only thing that <laughs> the media paid any attention to was, oh, extraterrestrial spacecraft <laughs> flies through the solar system to get a jump start on its, on its journey. The whales, save the whales. Save, Save the, the whales. whales! I know, yeah. it's uh, uh, Actually, even more than, than Star Trek IV, uh, Arthur C. Clarke wrote a novel called Rendezvous with Rama that was uh, a lovely, lovely book when I was in high school, growing up, really formative, and that actually involved a cylinder-shaped object that flew through our system that was found to be artificial in origin, you know, long and spindly, uh, and that, in fact, as it flew around the sun, accelerated on its way out. It's, and the big reveal of the, the, the story was it wasn't coming to the solar system to arrive here, it was simply using the star as a uh, kicking off point to get where it was actually going. And so yeah, there, obviously there's a lot of excitement, but the problem is that, you know, like in science in general, if you're gonna make an extraordinary claim, you have to have extraordinary evidence. And the problem with this whole like mania over uh, Oumuamua being a, a light sail driven extraterrestrial probe is that there are so many other explanations that don't require aliens to make it work. In fact, some really straightforward, uh, I mean, bizarre and cool, but very straightforward uh, things that basically involve the uh, uh, way comets work. So, you know, if Oumuamua came in from outside the solar system and it had, you know, baked in its materials uh, a lot of volatiles like carbon dioxide and oxygen and water under its surface, you know, basically the same stuff that we see comets are made of all through the solar system. There's the thing that happens that as that body gets warmer, it's warmed by the heat of the sun, uh, there will be some outgassing. The, the materials will, will start to jet out of it. And then what is interesting is that depending on like the rate of tumble, the side of the object that's facing the sun is really going to be the side that warms up faster and that you would expect to have more outgassing. And the side that's facing away would cool off and it, the, the outgassing would, would be reduced. So if you think about this tumbling kind of pencil-shaped object, think about the side that's facing the sun. If it warms up a little bit and starts to get little slight jets of material coming out of it, that's like a, a thruster. Then it keeps tumbling, and then you get like the, the pencil end pointing towards the star, and then, then, then the jets kind of die down, and then the next side faces the star. Well, so the side that was kind of propelling, now those jets have calmed down. But the jets on the other side kick in as it tumbles back, and they get exposed to the sunlight. And so as a result, you, you have this thing tumbling, and so you would have basically the side facing the sun is the side that would be emitting gases and giving a little bit of a thrust to an otherwise, you know, non artificial natural object and you would then see something accelerate out now obviously we, we see this with comets there are, are uh, there, there are even little subtle changes just from the radiation pressure off of warming an object on one side and as it rotates you can even get a tiny little bit of thrust out of that that even affects our calculations of where the asteroid orbits go over time but uh, with Oumuamua the other thing that really uh, kind of factors in there has to do with how you've distributed the mass if it were in a perfect sphere, a sphere has sort of the minimum amount of surface area for a given volume or mass, right? The sphere is sort of like the, the perfect shape. It's like you minimize surface area, but your thrust is directly proportional to the amount of surface area that has jets coming off of it. 
So if you take something and you, you, you form it into a, a, a ball, the amount of thrust versus the mass of the object, you're not going to get a lot of kick out of it. But if you take that same object and you make it really thin, like a pancake or, or, or a pencil, now you've actually greatly increased the amount of surface area for the same amount of material, which means now for the same amount of material, you're getting five, ten times as much thrust as if it were a sphere. And so that effect would be even stronger than if it were, were just a ball. So it may be a, a kind of a combination of factors of the, the particular shape this weird shaped object had plus the outgassing would be enough to actually produce something. And, and again, you know, there's a lot that we don't and won't know about it because it's so far away we can't really observe it anymore. And so it's going to be hard to test or disprove <laughs> you know, the light sail hypothesis if you can't do an observation. But there are definitely some really cool sciencey things that can explain it without aliens. I'm sorry to crush your dreams. I am really looking forward to the day that you have to deliver an astrometrics report that says it was aliens. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no one's looking forward to that day more than me. But the trick is, it can't be your first go-to explanation. <laughs> yeah, you want to go in and be able to say, okay, it cannot possibly be outgassing. It cannot possibly be this. And then, then show, and then you're like, the only thing left is aliens, and then, then we can have a really awesome party. <laughs> well, Dr. Hurt, thank you so very much for stopping by this episode to deliver your astrometrics report live on the bridge here on the Prioritas. We look forward to the next one next month. I look forward to delivering one, even if I have to do it from my cold, dark, lonely closet. <laughs> you are always welcome on Tuesday nights with us. <laughs> Message coming in, sir. Hailing frequencies. Open. See well, Captains, this is the part of the show where we open Haley Frequencies for your incoming messages. Episode 390's community question was, Would you like to see a Giorgio series? Would you prefer it be Emperor Giorgio or Captain Giorgio? From Patreon, Shane Hoover says, I would be thrilled to see a Captain Giorgio series. She was the captain we all hoped we'd get from Discovery, and we lost her as soon as we had her. I think she deserves a chance to earn a place alongside Picard, Kirk, Sisko, Janeway, and Archer in Trek lore. Also from Patreon, David S. says, Captain Georgiou. We don't need a series following Emperor Georgiou around the galaxy acting as an anti-hero as part of Section 31. If I want to watch something dark, realistic, and depressing, I'll turn on cable news. We need more series that will express and defend the ideals of hope and optimism that Star Trek originally expressed in TOS and TNG. I want more of the captain that said, quote, Starfleet doesn't fire first, end quote. I so agree with this sentiment so much, David S. When I read your comment, I was like, that is exactly what I mean. I, I miss having a captain, a leader that I can look up to and like actually take something away from the show. Um, and I 100% agree with you. We need more of the captain that said Starfleet doesn't fire first. I like Michael Burnham, and I know that she had an arc, and I know she, she had development. I still think if she had to, to do it over again, she still would be the one committing mutiny against um, uh, Captain Giorgio. I still think she would still advocate the Vulcan hello. I don't think she grew past that, and I don't... It's She's fine. I like her. I respect her, but I miss Captain Giorgio. I almost think you could combine David's idea and Robert's idea 
in having maybe the flashbacks of Captain Georgiou influence Emperor Georgiou. Maybe she's reading her Starfleet records to be more like her or to know more about her. And maybe it changes her to be more like Captain Georgiou. And, and maybe being able to see that change could give us hope with things that are happening today. From Facebook, Mike Keefe says, I'm liking the idea of a Section 31, Giorgio. Mirror Universe is overrated, in my opinion, but a bigger glimpse into the darker side of Starfleet wouldn't be that bad. Uh, and I could not disagree more. Sorry, Mike. There shouldn't be a dark side of Starfleet. From Facebook, Peter writes in, I think I speak for most fans when I say, no thanks, leave those stories for the novels. I would rather see a new series set in the 25th century. So many stories to tell going forward. From Twitter, Zombie Man says, Emperor Giorgio, her attitude and questionable moral fiber would be a cool starting spot for a character development-based series. And from Facebook, Carlos Perez writes in, Yes, but only if it's Captain Giorgio. Section 31 is an old and tired trope that is being used by lazy writers in order to have more conflict in a series. Let's move on to more new and exciting things. Stop dwelling in the past. From Twitter, Hayden Jones says, Captain Georgiou's death would hang too heavily like a sword of Damocles. For myself, but a mirror Georgiou as the leader of one of many political factions might be interesting. So I wasn't here for this discussion, nor did I listen to the conversation. And I would say that if I think that season that season one of Discovery would have done better having killed her and kept her dead instead of introducing an emperor or having kept her alive and finding another way to drive this conflict. That, that would have been hard, right, in terms of Michael Burnham's plot. But I think it cheapened Georgiou's death. We had, a, we had very quickly bonded to her. She was the captain. She was a new captain that we all really fell in love with very quickly in, the, in a matter of an episode, two episodes. I just think that it cheapened it, just like they cheapened Colbert's death by bringing him back as a force ghost. I just look, do it and 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 stick to it, you know, and and don't try to <laughs> bring it back or something. I think you mean spore ghost. Yeah, um, I I actually I actually completely disagree with you, and it's not it's not that often that I completely disagree with you, but I think that um, first of all, I like Mirror Giorgio, uh, the Empress Emperor, as um, as a character. But also, I think that the way she is and her character actually makes me feel more keenly the loss of Captain Giorgio. I so you like the juxtaposition? I like the juxtaposition. You know that that two part pilot trailer whatever thing at the beginning. Um, I think if we hadn't ever seen Giorgio again. Um, she she would have been uh, you know a, a guest star for one episode and then it, that would have she would have just gone off into the ether by bringing her back I think you are meant to miss Captain Giorgio especially because Emperor the Emperor Giorgio is so horrible um, f for me it, it emphasized uh, the impact that she made in those first two episodes well the other thing too is that she's the personification of the worst of Starfleet so or what Starfleet could become if they continue down down the path that they were going down and that is that as you said Elijah is juxtaposed 
from the beginning. I mean, she kind of bookends this the season one. So you have her as the ideal Starfleet captain in the first two episodes in the prologue, what I like to call the prologue. Then you have her as the empress who is who is the exact opposite and who is inf- influencing Starfleet's decisions in the in the last couple of episodes. And and you see Burnham stand up to her in two different ways in the beginning and in the end. And that showcases Burnham's growth throughout the series. And so she so she's meant to be that reflection, you know, for what Starfleet could possibly be. And that's that's what she's there. Well, that wraps up episode 391 of Priority One, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. For more great podcasts like Mission Log and Mission Log Live, Women at Warp, and The Trek Files, visit podcasts.roddenberry.com. But before we go, here's a community question for this week. Are you excited to fly the new Fakiri store warship from the winter event? Captains, you know we love hearing from you. Leave us a comment on our website at PriorityOnePodcast.com, on our Facebook page at Facebook.com forward slash PriorityOnePodcast, or find us on Twitter or Instagram at PriorityOnePod. Don't miss a thing from the Star Trek multiverse. Catch our episodes every Friday by pointing your favorite podcast app to feeds.PriorityOnePodcast.com. You can even join in on the fun while we record our episodes live on Tuesday nights at around 11.30 p.m. Eastern on Facebook. Keep an eye on our social media channels for details. Have you still not had enough of us? Well, you can join us on Twitch.tv on Saturday nights because Admiral Winters and the Priority One Armada jump on our Twitch channel where they review the latest Star Trek Online and Armada news, as well as spotlight some of the amazing members in our community. Each week, we team up with you, the viewers, and earn things like reputation marks and dilithium. With regular giveaways, there is something for all Star Trek Online players, new and old. Follow us on twitch.tv forward slash Priority One. And if you'd like to join the Armada, visit PriorityOneArmada.com. Still not enough? Well, then be sure to watch for The Cutting Room. Join Priority One audio editor Brandon Parker on Thursday nights and watch as he turns our Tuesday hijinks into Friday gold. That link again is twitch.tv forward slash Priority One. This episode of Priority One Podcast is also brought to you by our patrons through patreon.com. Find out more and add your support at patreon.com forward slash Priority One. Even if you can't make a financial contribution... Please help spread the word about the show and invite your fellow Trekkies. It's your support that keeps us going. Don't forget to tune in to Priority One Productions' Guard Frequency podcast at guardfrequency.com. Each episode, the Guard will take you inside the universe of your favorite space sims, including a tabletop adventure played out by your hosts. And Heroes Rise brings you up to date with the world of Dungeons and Dragons. Learn all about the latest publications, tools, tips, tricks, and traps in less time than it takes to skin a wyvern. Head over to HeroesRisePodcast.com to discover their secrets. Thanks to our audio editors, including Brandon Parker and new recruits James Golding, Rand Hurl, and Daniel Stevens. Thanks to producer Jake Morgan for assisting in writing our show and social media endeavors, including Title It Thursdays and Awesome Survey Sundays. Thanks to our artist and web designer, Henry Pomper. Thanks to the composer of our theme music, Chris Watts. Thanks to our syndication partners, Subspace Radio and Trek Radio. Thanks to Patreon associate producers, Navy Boats Lou and Jim DeVico. 
Most importantly, a big thanks to you, the Star Trek community, our listeners, because without your ongoing support, none of this would be possible. Enemy ship on sensors. Red alert. Shields up. Su no. Engage. I'm Elijah. I'm Kenna. And I'm Tony. No, I'm not. I'm Anthony. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are well, that, sometimes Tony. I'm all discombobulated tonight. So, all right, here we go. Here we go. Stone News. This is Anthony Sink 1. Is the loneliest number that you'll ever hear. Because it's just me this week. It's just me. Starfleet could possibly be. And that's... that's so ultimately what you're saying is that she doesn't give a shit about what either Georgiou says. And is going to do what she wants anyway. Ha! What an arc. She was the captain we'd all hoped we'd get... F- I just messed... Just rewind. You're right there. Yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm having a moment. I've had more wine than I usually have at this point in the day because we spent half an hour astrometricsing, and, and I'm tired. It's after ten, right? Um, where was I? It's after one. Podcast. Roddenberry. Com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.